You're listening to Culture Rich. Culture Rich. Welcome, I'm Christina Michelle, inviting you to join me for Culture Rich Conversations, an ongoing feature of Juno Afternoon. Today, we begin a series of episodes that will cover racial microaggressions in American culture. In the first episode, we'll define and discuss examples of racial microaggression, racism, and gaslighting. As a reminder, our goal at Culture Rich Conversations is to provide content based on the Black lived experience in Alaska by creating a space where people of color in our community are represented, heard, and have tools to thrive. These conversations are necessary, even if they are uncomfortable to hear. From KTOO in Juno, this is Culture Rich Conversations. Culture Rich Conversations is underwritten by Mark Stofa and Sarah Hannon, celebrating Juno's diversity of culture, language, and heritage. The Black Awareness Association would like to take a moment to recognize that Culture Rich Conversations is broadcast from Flinket Ani. We acknowledge those families who made use of this land and waterways for thousands of years and still cherish it as an important part of their way of life. For today and future generations. Gunalschish, thank you. This is Christina. This is Christina Michelle. As the rate of hate crimes against communities of color continue to rise in the United States, we find it important to discuss racial microaggressions out loud, not just in the privacy of our homes. In order to end racial microaggressions, we all need to recognize them when we see them and call them out instead of ignoring them. Today marks the beginning of a series of conversations around the different ways racial microaggressions appear and how they've affected people of color. To lay a foundation for future conversations, we'll define terms that will likely come up with our guests and give examples of those terms as well. Joining me for this conversation is our producer, Natasha Boozer. Natasha, thank you for joining me for this today. Thank you for having me. All right, so let's begin with the definition of microaggression. Microaggression is verbal, behavioral, or environmental slights, whether intentional or unintentional, that communicate hostile, derogatory, or negative attitudes towards stigmatized or culturally marginalized groups. This term was coined in 1970 by Harvard University psychiatrist Chester M. Pierce. This was his way of describing insults and dismissals that he witnessed non-Blacks inflicting on African Americans. So, Natasha, can you think of any uh, examples of racial microaggressions? I certainly can. Um, someone saying you are so articulate or you speak so well, you know, that's an example of micro, racial microaggressions. And that can just make the person receiving that comment feel as though their race isn't intelligent or hasn't seen been seen to be intelligent. Another example could be um, you look just like that person of color. And that can make you feel like they don't see you as an individual, that they only see race. Another example can be like, I don't, when I look at you, I don't see color. Um, and that denies a person of color's racial, you know, experiences and ethnic experiences. Those are a few examples I can think of. 
All right. So the important thing to remember about microaggressions is that whether or not the person making the comment is aware or not, it doesn't change the fact that it is indeed a racial microaggression and that it can only cause harm and trauma. The definition of racism is discrimination and prejudice towards people based on their race or ethnicity. Racism isn't just people walking around in hooded white robes or people burning crosses on someone's front yard. Sadly, it's continued to evolve and it's done so in a way that it causes the person on the receiving end to sometimes go against their own gut instincts and question whether or not they themselves are actually experiencing it at all. So examples of racism, Natasha, what might you say? I would say, you know, prejudice and overt bias, such as when a person of color is refused a job or the ability to rent or purchase a home based on their race. Um, stereotyping, you know, this occurs when someone decides that an entire race of people act the same based on the actions of one or a few people in that race. Um, racial profiling or ethnic profiling um, is also another example of racism when the person is targeted or discriminated against because of their race or ethnicity instead of, you know, actual facts. Um, I think those are really good examples. Definitely. And the most important thing to remember and fully understand is that racism is displayed in many ways and it can occur in a lot of situations. Some of the instances are obvious and others aren't as obvious. So now that we've clearly defined microaggression and racism, there's one more word that needs defining and that's gaslighting. So the definition of gaslighting is a form of psychological manipulation where a person tries to sow self-doubt and confusion in another person's mind. This usually happens when the gaslighter tries to gain power or control over someone else by distorting their reality and causing them to question their own judgment and intuition. So examples of racial gaslighting. Um, yes, I can think of too, right off the bat, um, when someone says, why are you making it about race? Um, you know, the person that receives this comment, um, the message they receive is that, you know, their experience of racism is only in their head. And the second that I can think of is saying, stop playing the victim. Um, you know, this message received by the person of color is that they must be exaggerating their experience by identifying as racism. Yeah, those are really good examples. Um, and we're going to get into our own personal experiences later on in the show. And we're also going to get to talk about uh, racial microaggressions in a lot of different areas. If you're just tuning in today, I'm Christina Michelle, and I'm here with our producer, Natasha Boozer. And we're discussing racial microaggression in American culture. So far, we've defined and given examples regarding terms that are important to cover when having this conversation, terms such as microaggression, racism, and gaslighting. Understanding these terms will help us all begin to identify, call out, and move forward in ending the steady rise in racial microaggressions that exist in our communities in and around Alaska, as well as the U.S. So racial microaggressions happen in every community. And there's so much to cover when having the conversation. It isn't possible to achieve it in just one episode. So we are very excited 
to begin a series on microaggressions, and that's going to allow us to just dive deeply into the subject. So over the next few months, we'll cover different situations where racial microaggressions occur. And each episode is going to highlight a specific topic. Some of the examples are racial microaggressions in government, education, social media, gaming, and in the medical field. So we have covered quite a lot so far already, but this is just the beginning of the conversation. Natasha, I'm excited to go deeper in this next segment. Uh, this is Culture Rich Conversations regarding racial microaggressions in American culture. Let's take a quick break and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Culture Rich Conversations. I'm Christina Michelle. Before we went to break, I spent some time talking about the terms, definitions, examples, and topics we at Culture Rich Conversations are going to be covering in our new series centered around racial microaggressions in American culture. In this segment, our show's producer, Natasha Boozer, will join me in a conversation about these racial microaggressions, as well as share her own personal experiences with this type of racism as well. Thank you so much for joining me in this discussion today, Natasha. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Okay. So does it surprise you to see these microaggressions in all of the ways that I described in the first segment? So it doesn't. I um, didn't have to look very far when researching um, and producing this episode to see that there are many, many, many examples in all of those topics that show my racial microaggressions. Um, I think that people listening might be surprised at some of the areas where their microaggressions do exist, but I personally was not surprised. Were you surprised? Um, yeah, there's a couple of the um, areas that we're going to cover that I never really thought about. Like the gaming one, I think is really interesting. Um, and actually, sometimes things happen um, that are obvious microaggressions that I've become so used to that I don't even notice it. And so, you know, to to list those things out and to really look at them like, oh, wow, that's a microaggression um, I thought was really interesting. 
So I'm excited yes, about too, yeah. this series. So what do you think is at the root of racial microaggressions? Right. So when I thought about this question, I really had to sit down with that because you can, you can talk about it from your own personal experience and your own lived experience, or you can talk about it from historical perspective. So I think for the sake of this discussion, I'll talk about it from a little bit of both. I think that the root is multifaceted, right? I think that it has to do with historical, historically how it has uh, occurred and how it has affected people of color, communities of color, um, racism is something new in America. Um, but I think that you have to look at why did it occur in the first place? Um, and then think about it today in your own life and in modern America today. Why does it still continue to occur? Why hasn't it stopped? So I remember being uh, in middle school and we talked about it in history. And I remember thinking when I'm an adult, this isn't going to be a problem. And fast forward to now we're adults and it's still a big problem. And so the question becomes, why is it still a problem? Why haven't we been able to move forward? Why haven't we been able to change this type of behavior? And I think because it benefits the people who are inflicting that kind of behavior, right? I think it's because it benefits them financially, um, culturally, and they're comfortable with this type of behavior and not having to change. So in my personal opinion, this is just speaking for myself, I think it continues um, and the root of it is that it continues to benefit the people who are causing this kind of behavior um, and changing it does not benefit them. Um, so I think that's why it's still it's still happening. What do you think is the root of it? Well, I'm, I'm just going to ask, can you expand on the um, benefiting, how it benefits the people who are doing it? Like, how do you think it benefits yeah. them? Absolutely. I think that it it allows them to not have to change their um, way of life. So uh, I think back to, there's a man uh, on Instagram and he moved into this affluent uh, neighborhood in Georgia, in a town in, North, in Georgia. And the reason he moved there was because there was this lake um, and he grew up fishing. He loves to fish. It's how he... Um, has his self-care. He goes and he fishes. And so he, his parents bought this house in a gated community um, and they moved there because of that lake. And so he lived with his parents. And so he would go and he would fish and um, people in the neighborhood who were not people of color would show up and say, do you live here? Um, this is private property. And he would say, I know I live here. Um, I'm a resident in this area. And they would say, oh, what, what's your address? And he would say, what's your address? And so <laughs> that became back and forth. And they would call the police. And he's documented it on Instagram. He's been on the local news there. He made national news, I think, about a month ago on, um, I think, the Today Show. Um, but he, you know, he was a resident there. I mean, he shouldn't have to show evidence of where he lives. And I think he also referred to, he had seen other people who were not people of color fishing in that lake as well and they were not asked to leave so i think the reason the ways that it shows that it benefits people who are doing the same thing is because they don't want to have to change they don't think of doing anything wrong and if you cause them to have to confront their own racism it's uncomfortable because now they're being labeled a racist but it doesn't negate from the fact that your behavior is an example of racism so 
the way that I see it, you don't, a person who is benefiting from this behavior doesn't want to change, doesn't want to address who they are and the fact that they are a part of the problem. Because if you ignore it, you feel like you're not a part of the problem. And if you don't address it, you feel like, well, it doesn't affect me. So why should I change? But that's an example of how it benefits the person who's doing it. Okay, got it. Thank you for expounding. Um, so I tend to think of um, the root being more ignorance, and that could be ignorant on my part. But by and large, I don't think that most people mean to be racist or mean to uh, exhibit microaggressions in their daily life. Um, I think that it's more of just not being aware of what they're how their message is coming across. Um, and it's so funny because I was um, on a trip with a friend recently and she rented the car that we were driving. And, you know, when you drive out, you're supposed to show your ID to the attendant. And we're both black, but we look completely different from each other. And I said, okay, well, I have to show my ID. Like I'm driving now, but you're the one renting it and I'm going to show her my ID, but she's probably going to you know, know that it's not, I'm not you. And she said, you know, they think we all look alike anyway. And I was like, you're right. And it's true. <laughs> I handed her my ID. It looked completely opposite of the person who was supposed to be the driver. And she didn't pay any attention at all. And she called me the wrong name and everything, even though I had my, like she had my ID. Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and she's like, okay, have a good day. And she's like, I told you, we're both black. That's good enough. And I was like, that's crazy. <laughs> and do I think the lady was racist? No, I don't. I, you know, was she maybe a little careless? Yeah, um, maybe a little ignorant, possibly. Um, but I just don't, um, I don't tend to think that people mean to come across the way that they do. So I think that conversations like this are really important because they're enlightening and they hopefully do help people to to just look a little deeper at um, the way that they are communicating and what their message might be coming across as. So what do you think needs to be done other than conversations like this, um, to help to end racial microaggressions in our society. Right. So I think that it begins with a conversation. Um, the one that we're having right now is indicative of ones that are being happen- having all over the country in people's living rooms, when they have family gatherings at Thanksgiving tables, um, husbands and wives, or you know, couples just in their own bedroom talking about their experiences that they had that day. Um, so I think the beginning is talking about it, but also not leaving it there. You don't have to, um, if you're not a person who wants to go out and protest, you can, you can make a difference in your own community. You can help out in nonprofits that support people of communities and color. And you can also, when you go and vote, you can do a little more homework on the candidate you're voting for or the measure or the, you know, something that wants to get, it's going to get passed and really find out how voting for that person or not voting for that measure is going to affect your community um, directly. Because as we can see, it does make a difference who you vote for. It does make a difference who's you know on the school board, what gets taught in your children's schools. It makes a difference who your governor is, um, who your senator is, who your local council person is. It makes a difference. Um, I think it's good to have the conversation, but you have to put actions behind that. You can't just talk about it and then not 
address it. Like if you see something, say something. If you're with a group of friends or family members who happen to display this type of behavior, call it out, speak up. You know, don't just be an online warrior, but say <laughs> something in real life situations because it makes a difference. Um, if people, if the circles where this type of microaggression exists begin to get smaller and smaller, it will affect our entire country and all of our communities because we won't allow it anymore. We won't just turn a blind eye and ignore it. We'll stand up and we'll say something, even if it's uncomfortable, even if it makes you like your ears get hot or your start to sweat a little bit and you get nervous, cheeks get a little bit of red. That's okay because you're standing up for what's right. And that's how we make a difference. One community at a time. I agree with that. Mental health is a big topic um, right now. And I'm wondering how you think that racial microaggressions affect the mental health of people of color. So I can speak from my personal experience with this, although I know uh, moving forward, we'll have more technical um, uh, confusion about it. But in my personal experience with racism, I remember experiencing it from a child, from being eight years old in the playground and not knowing how to handle that and then internalizing that. And then as I grew up into an adult, a young woman, and then a much older woman, (laughs) I still struggle sometimes. And I'm so thankful that we talked about gaslighting because one of the experiences that I have had is gaslighting myself. Am I actually experiencing racism or am I overreacting? And I think that I can be the only one that experiences that. And the damage that it does to your mental health to gaslight yourself when you are having a racist experience is very, it's so damaging. You have to be true to yourself, right? You can't lie to yourself and then believe that lie. I think that's a part of the trauma that comes from dealing with racial microaggressions is every person of color that has experienced it we either address it immediately or we internalize it and say, I must be wrong. I must have made a mistake. And I think that, that I can be the only person who experiences that. Um, I think it's very common. And the problem is if we don't address it, it just continues to happen. And then you miss these moments of racism. Mm-hmm. You miss microaggressions and it doesn't, you don't heal from that. And that stays with you. And it's very damaging to not address it at all. Yeah, the desensitization, you know, that I, mm-hmm. I had just That's the word. mentioned. <laughs> yeah, that it happens so much that you can become so um, blind to it and you don't realize the damage that's being caused subconsciously. Um, but that desensitization leads to not speaking up or not advocating for yourself. And then you essentially become part of the problem. If you're just joining us, I'm Christina Michelle, and I'm here with Natasha Boozer, our producer, and we are having a conversation around racial microaggressions in American culture. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back.
Welcome back to Culture Rich Conversations. I'm Christina Michelle. I'm here with Natasha Boozer, our producer, and we are going to continue our conversation around racial microaggressions in American culture. So, Natasha, I am going to ask you um, what you think about the way that communities of color handle microaggressions and racism. How do you how do you think that it's uh, showing up for us, like our our response to it? Ways. I think um, in communities of color, you you have um, people who are there to support you, and you have resources, um, and that can be found in nonprofits that uh, are supportive of communities of color, and it can also be found in churches. Um, I think of activities that are done um, where churches bring the community together um, and are there to support people who are, you know, having difficulty with racial microaggressions. Um, and how they give them outlets to express themselves, to vent. And then, you know, if you're at church, they will pray for you and they will encourage you and they will stand with you. Um, and I think the same can be said for nonprofits that, you know, are places of safety for people going through these kind of things. Um, I think it's important to remember that those resources do exist and to seek them out. You're not alone. Um, so you don't have to go through these experiences alone. There's always someone available, hopefully, in your community that you can reach out to and that will support you and you can call in in times of need. Absolutely. So what resources are um, in place to combat microaggressions and racism in communities of color? So I think where this comes into play is when you have people who stand up for social injustice. Um, there are attorneys um, that will be there for you to help with your legal issues. If, if it's discrimination at your job or um, in the school system or even in your everyday life. Um, Cause of course you can experience social injustice anywhere, um, not just um, at places of work or places of business. Um, but I think that's a great resource um, to stand up and to combat it and to hold people accountable and, and um, to show there are consequences for, you know, hate crimes and discrimination. Um, there are laws in place that protect um, people who experience this. So I think that's definitely one place you can look to um, for help in our communities. So the rise of hate crimes, we talked about that, or I mentioned it earlier um, in the show, and I'm wondering how microaggressions have possibly contributed to the rise of hate crimes in our communities. Right. So you can look to social media for this to be a clear indication of that. Um, I read a lot of articles that have to do with race just in my own free time, which 
says a lot about me, <laughs> but it also I also read the comments and you can see in the comments that um, racism goes unchecked. And so the, the, the content that you and I would hear um, in movies about the civil rights movement, it, it, it appears in these comments. And more often than not, people in the comments, they also congregate in real life. And they go out and they meet and they do things to harm other people as a result of their own beliefs that maybe they're being, you know, they're missing out on what they want in life because a different group of people are taking that from them. And of course, that's not true, but it's because of what happens on social media, what they see on whatever news outlet they consume you can get this heightened feeling of if you check it out on your own, you can see how a person would think that they're being attacked by mm. communities of color and they have to go out and do something and stand up for America. But it's because of the content they consume. And because if that's all they consume, because of that, it puts them in a heightened state of defense all the time. Um, and it also has to do with the gun laws we have in this country where in Nevada, you can have, you know, opening care, you can have your gun with you when you go into the Walmart. Um, and I've seen it with my own eyes. It's very <laughs> shocking to see a person with children and then have, they have a gun in their waist. It's very strange, but that's just the country we live in. And so if they feel that they're being infringed upon, they can use weapon and they can inflict harm on someone else. Also, you can see it with road rage. Um, that's another example where race definitely can play a part. Um, and you can see that happening in cities all across America. So I think it has to do with what's happening in that person's life or in their community that caused them to believe that they're being attacked and have to always be on the defense um, or they're going to lose their way of life. And that will cause them to then go out and you know, want to go shoot or hurt people of color to try and protect what they think is theirs. Um, it's very sad and you see it more and more um, nowadays. And I'm not sure if it's because it's being reported on more, but it always existed or if it's just happening more. But I think that the rhetoric around um, this type of behavior has become amplified. And as a result, the violence that in turn comes from that has begun to rise in a very alarming way. That's really interesting. And I think it's a combination of all the things, um, definitely social media and our access to mm -hmm. information has exponentially increased. And so um, it could be happening more or it could just be that we are hearing about it more because we have so many ways to, to see it, read it, watch it, share it. Um, tweet it, all the things. So, you know, we know that what we give our attention to grows, it just feeds it. Um, do you think that having conversations about this is contributing to it? Are we, are we feeding it by talking about it? <laughs> so, okay. The reason that I want to talk about this is because there are two uh, schools of thought that I have come to recognize. There's a thought of if you don't talk about it, then it will just go away, which we know is not true. And then there's a thought that if you do talk about it, um, it could make it worse. And so I think that we have to understand what is true, right? So not talking about it does not make it go away. 
it allows it to grow and it allows to grow unchecked. And there's no consequences. There's no justice when it does happen. And so if someone says you're talking about it, you're dividing us just by having the conversation at all, to me, that leans towards racial gaslighting because it then says you shouldn't talk about it at all because you're just making it worse. But we have to talk about it. And it's not as though communities of color want to talk about it. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to have this be a part of our lives, but it is. And so we can't ignore it. I think that it makes people who continue to show racial microaggressions to communities of color more comfortable to not have to acknowledge that it exists. But in turn, it continues the cycle of these microaggressions in communities of color because no one is acknowledging it to a point where there comes a, a, an end to it. So I don't think having this conversation makes it worse. Um, I think that it puts a mirror in front of the person who is doing it and saying, this is what you're doing and we see you and we want you to see yourself as well. Yeah, I think of the um, time where Mother Teresa was asked to attend this like anti-war rally. And she said, I will never attend an anti-war rally, but if you invite me to a pro-peace rally, I'm there. I'm paraphrasing. Um, but <laughs> yeah, I, I love that because I think that it is important for us to have the conversation, but it's it's how we're presenting the conversation and it's what we want to come from it. And so it's not just highlighting it and saying, look at what's happening and let, let's give all the examples. It's also, you know, with the um, eye towards this is what we want to happen instead. Right. And so like we can spend a little bit of time um you know, laying a foundation about what it is. But I think it's important to spend just as much or more time talking about the opposite and, mm -hmm. you know, what our, our goal is. Um, so I agree. So um, would you like to share some personal stories, some accounts of microaggressions? Speaking of laying a foundation before we continue. Uh, and I know that like actually the reason that we even started uh, this series is based on an experience that you had recently. Yes, yes, that's correct. Um, so I live in the suburbs in Nevada and Las Vegas. I live out by the mountains um, and it's a very quiet suburb. Um, and we just had, well, we, we were having a storm. And so my husband and I decided instead of sitting out in front of our house, where we'd get wet, we sat in the garage, but like by the front of the garage, like right by our driveway, our neighborhood. Um, and it was like maybe sundown, but not dark. We were sitting there like older people do sometimes in our lawn chairs. <laughs> oh, not rocking chairs. About our day. No, <laughs> no. <laughs> so I can understand that maybe young people may not identify with this type of... <laughs> situation we were just sitting there just talking about our day um and this suv that we didn't recognize um we've lived there for almost four years now um and so we recognize all the vehicles that come in and go in our neighborhood and there was a rec uh, red suv that pulled up that we thought they were lost because they stopped in front of our driveway um and then the woman i knew, noticed her because she had a bright flashlight in her hand and she shined it right in our faces and we were like is she lost 
what's happening? We're very confused. She didn't say anything. She didn't say, I'm lost. Can, can you tell me how to get to this address? She just shined her light in both of our faces, like very, very bright, right in our eyes, not just in our direction, but very focused on our faces. And that's how I was able to see her face. She was a, a white woman. And then she drove up about two houses down, dropped someone off, turned around, and then drove back in front of our driveway, stopped, and then sped off very quickly. And so my husband and I were confused and we felt like, was this racism? Because it feels racist, but are we overreacting? Are we wrong? And so for the whole evening, I remember gaslighting myself into thinking I'm overreacting. It was probably nothing, but the was this very small part of me that was like, I don't think that was nothing, Natasha. I think that was racism. I think that was a form of profiling. Why are you gaslighting yourself? And I'm just thinking, I don't want to be the problem. I don't want to contribute to the problem. And I think I called you and told you about it. And I was realizing this is racial microaggression. (laughs) And it's not, you know, the person screaming the N-word at you. It's little things like this to intimidate you because they don't want you there. And mind you, we've lived there here for about four years and never had a problem, not ever. It's a very multicultural neighborhood um, where kids of all uh, ethnic differences play in the street, basketball, soccer, and we know each other very well. We have very nice neighbors. And so this experience was shocking to us because we thought we would have experienced that when we first moved in, but we didn't. We experienced it after the fact. And so I think out of that discussion I had with you, we decided to talk about this on the show because if it happened to me, it's probably happened to at least a million other people of color in America who just decide not to talk about it. It's probably nothing, just like moved it away, like no big deal, but it is a big deal because the person who did it to us thought it was so important to do it in the first place. And the way they get to continue that kind of behavior is because no one, like we didn't say anything. They drove away. We didn't, we didn't say, excuse me, that's rude. How dare you? We were just like in shock. And it was so quick. It was like maybe two minutes, the whole interaction that there were moments where I wondered if it happened at all. If my husband hadn't been there, I would have thought that I just like, maybe I just exaggerated it, but I didn't. It really happened. And um, it was very disturbing. Yeah. And you shared in a previous um, episode about being at home and like, wasn't it something with like your husband checking the mail or something like that? Oh, and then yes, like yes. your house oh, was man. surrounded by cops like 10 yeah, minutes later. Was, yes. So it was, we first moved to California back in 2015. Um, you know me, I like to live in the suburbs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not a big fan of the big city. I like quiet neighborhoods. And so we found a really quiet neighborhood. Um, it was after Thanksgiving in 2015. We were sitting down to watch the Terminator movie mm-hmm. <laughs> on DVD and we had popcorn and I went into the kitchen and there was, um, we had a back door with a glass back door that faced our backyard. And I saw a police officer pointing a gun at me. And I was just like, I you filming a movie in my neighborhood. I'm very confused. <laughs> so I didn't understand what was happening. And I was like, what's happening? So I opened the door and he was like, put your hands up. And I was like, put your gun down first and then I'll do that. And so he lowered his gun and he came in and I said, what's going on? 
And he said, a neighbor called us and said that someone was going from mailbox to mailbox, throwing mail in the trash, which is a federal crime, obviously. And I said, no, no one who lives here. I said, my husband checked the mail a few minutes ago and you throw away the junk mail and put it in the trash. And then you bring the mail in. And he had gone in through the back way. And when I turned around to talk to face my husband and then turned back, three more officers came into our house. And I was like, there's more of you? And he said, yes, your house is surrounded. Please go answer the front door and let the officer in, in the front door. He says, everything is fine. And when I did that, I noticed a helicopter flying over our house. And I noticed a, a, um, a police truck and they were putting the first time I'd ever seen them, by the way, AK-47s back into the, the vehicle. And I was like, this is for that us. Is crazy. And, he, <laughs> and then, so we showed them our, our ID. We did live there. We were residents. We weren't robbing the place that was our home, our residence. And then this happened next. A couple months later or weeks later, we got a letter from a local police station saying that we had called in a false police report. And we're being cited and fined. And I called them. I said, we did not call the police on ourselves. (laughs) (laughs) How dare you? (laughs) And so what I found out later on, real quick, what I found out later on was the, um, one of our neighbors who we had met when we moved in told us the person who called the police on us had called her and said, I just called the police on the house two doors down from me because I thought I was being robbed. And she said, well, I don't think so, but a new black couple just moved in. And she goes, oh, well, I didn't know that. So I called the police anyway. And the neighbor told me this. And that's how I knew the whole story. And so, you know, I am thankful that I was able to live and that my husband was still alive and my daughter was fine. Um, we didn't tell our son about this until he was much older because he was in second grade. But and this was before um, people, you know, being attacked or or people, you know, having their you know lives being threatened because of people calling the police was a big thing. It was right before that happened, and we had experienced it as well. And it's never lost on us that if we had reacted upset and in a heightened way, we could have lost our lives that day. Um, and we're so thankful that we didn't, but it was, it was a very traumatic experience. Um, and when we talk about mental health, my husband, the, the, just the vision of having a gun being pointed at you, it definitely put him in a very difficult space mentally for a while Absolutely, because he couldn't believe it. He couldn't believe it happened at all. Natasha, that is Incredible. And every time I hear you talk about it, it's like the first time, like my mouth just falls open again because I just can't believe that something so, um, so egregious like happened to you while you're in your own home. Like you're just going to the kitchen and suddenly there's a Mm -hmm. gun in your face and your house is surrounded. Um, how do you, how do you process these things with your kids? Like, I don't, I don't have any kids. I have a niece and a nephew. And sometimes we have conversations about race, um, especially Mm -hmm. because they're here in a predominantly white community. Um, But I'm just wondering, like, I know you said that you didn't talk um, about it with your son until later, but do you mind talking a little bit about what that conversation was like? I don't mind at all. I waited until he was 12. It happened when he was seven, I want to say. 
Um, I knew he would cry if I told him when he was so young and he was in school that day. So he didn't even experience it at all. And my daughter was maybe 19 months. So she didn't really know. Um, but when I did tell him, I sat him down and I explained to him that because he was a young black male in his life, people may have preconceived notions about who he is and if he is a threat to them. And I said, it's not fair. It's not right. But I want him to be prepared. Um, because things like this happen all the time and you don't always survive them. So I told him what happened and I was very calm. He had many questions. Um, he did cry a little bit because of the idea of this happening to us. Um, and he said, mom, why would someone think I'm a bad person just because of the color of my skin? They don't even know me. And I said, I know, but in our society, it happens all the time. And there's not always a logical reason why it happens. I can talk about, you know, the civil rights movement and I can talk about racism and I can talk about slavery and the enslaved. But the root of it is that people fear what they don't know, understand, and they like their way of life. And because they enjoy that way of life, they will fiercely protect it. And sometimes that can be at the cost of other people. And so I wanted him to be aware, especially when he, you know, is older, which he's very fastly approaching now at 15, when he'll be able to drive soon and be in the car with, in, uh, in Black culture, we call it mixed company, meaning that there's white people, brown people, Black people in the vehicle. And so I said, when you're in mixed company, whether you're at a party or in the vehicle, you have to be aware of your surroundings and you have to act accordingly. You can't act like people who are not of color because you'll be the one targeted. You have to make sure that you take care of yourself. You have to make sure that if you see an officer that you speak calmly and respectfully, follow whatever they're asking you to do. Even if you feel un that there's injustice being done to you, you still have to use wisdom when you speak and when you react. Um, and he's older now, he's 15 and he understands. But at 12, when I first told him, he was very angry and, you know, I said, you know, it's okay. It's not every officer. And I told him like this, I said, just like, you know, there are good teachers and bad teachers. You've experienced that. There are phenomenal, wonderful officers. And there are some that are not so great. And you will recognize the difference immediately. But either way, use wisdom and you be respectful because you don't want to lose your life um, in that interaction. So that's how that went. That is so great. What a good mom you are. And I love the analogy you used <laughs> of like teachers. That's something that he can understand, you know, comparing them to police officers. Um, and thank you for sharing. I don't think we had intended to talk about your your momming, but <laughs> you're so <Okay>. incredible. <laughs> If you're just joining us, I'm Christina Michelle, and I'm here with our uh, producer, Natasha Boozer, and we're having a conversation around racial microaggressions, and it's the beginning of a series that we're going to be covering um, over the next few months in Culture Rich Conversations. So, Natasha, I don't have any examples that are anywhere near as sensational as the things that you've experienced. But one thing that comes to mind is um, traveling. I feel like it happens when I travel. <laughs> like a lot of my experiences are like away from Juno, which is good, I suppose. But um, mm -hmm. my mom and I were 
uh, at an airport and it was time to board the plane. And they called for the first class passengers to board. And, um, you know, people got in line and and then me and my mom got up to get in the line. And then there were other people behind us who were not black. But the person in Mm -hmm. front of us was a white woman. And she turned around and she said, oh, they're only boarding first class people right now. (gasps) And I said, we are first class. And she looked at me. Her eyes got wide and she said, both of you. And I I thought it was hilarious. I was like, yeah. And my mom looked like she was about to snatch her up. (laughs) I mean, my mom was born in the 50s in the South. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, this hit a nerve for her that it didn't necessarily hit with me. And I just I was just so happy. I was like, I hope I'm sitting next to her. Like I like that's how I looked at it. I'm like, I am about to ruin the rest of your day. Um, But, you know, my mom was angry and understandably so. And I just was like, okay, whatever. Um, But. It's those type of things that then there's the gaslighting that can come in. Because like if you tell another person who is not a, a person of color, you know, a lot of times I've heard, you know, somebody say, well, but how do you know it was because you were black? And it's like, mm-hmm. well, OK, I don't. I don't. I couldn't prove it. But if we are going to brainstorm <laughs> all the things it could have been, you know, I, I think yeah. it's a short list. Right. So um, so that's one fairly recent example. Um, and, and like I said, I'm happy that, um, I don't feel like I get this often in my own hometown. Um, but Mm -hmm. I, you know, it still does exist. It exists in the workplace. Like sometimes people will be like, Oh, well, let me speak to the person in charge. And I'm like, that's me. And they're like, Oh, and they're like Mm -hmm. still looking over my shoulder. (laughs) Like they're still looking Mm -hmm. for somebody else. And I'm like, okay. Um, is it my race? Is it, um, my gender? Like, I mean, it could be different things, Mm -hmm. but, um, it's, it's really important, um, to recognize it, but not internalize it, I guess I'll say. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, any other examples you want to share before we um, close out? Sure. I think there's one example that I haven't ever shared just because it was so, it was very upsetting. Um, it involved my son and he doesn't know that this even happened because he was probably two or three at the time. We took him in Pennsylvania. We used to live in Bucks County, Pennsylvania um, before I moved to the West Coast. And um, we took him to this park because it had really nice, um, playground it was near where we lived very 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 close the closest one to us and we loved it but took him there one afternoon on the weekend and um it was me my husband and Moses we didn't have Grace yet she wasn't born yet and um we were playing and I always my son was very shy so I always encouraged him to play with other kids to make new friends um but he was super shy and so he was doing great. He met this little girl. She was um, a little white girl and she was just, they were playing together. But then this other boy who must've been either her brother or her cousin or someone in her family showed up and they were all close to the same age between ages like two, three, four, and five. Um, And I was just there keeping an eye on him. And the little boy starts yelling the N word at my son Mm. and saying, he's an N word. Don't play with him. And I, I heard it. And the interesting thing was my son had never heard that word before ever, not in our home, not on anything we ever watched. He'd never heard that word. So I was experiencing in real time, 
the first time he ever heard that word and his first racist experience. And I didn't know anything other to do than to scoop him up and just leave because the adults that were present who also heard it just looked at us and no one said anything. And I think as we were leaving, I noticed a parent or a mother of that boy, you know, pull him aside and like shake her finger in his face, whatever. But I didn't hear the um, back and forth. And I remember thinking, even in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, in a very nice looking neighborhood, there is still racism here and it happens with children. So what that means is that other child had heard that word before, knew what it meant and was able to use it. And I just burst into tears because to me, the saddest thing to see is a child who perpetuates that behavior because that means that's the environment they're being raised in. And as fiercely as we are trying to raise our children to recognize it and to not um, hate people for that behavior, the other side is continuing to raise their children in that environment. And that's why it's so important for us to have these episodes to talk about these things because they're still doing it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's still a priority to them. Because racism is taught, it's learned, and we have to continue to do our part to combat it. Well, amen to that. Um, Is there anything else that you want to add before um, we wrap up this segment and this show? No, I'm just thankful that we have the opportunity to talk about it, you and I. Um, I appreciate it so much. And I hope that our listeners will tune in um, because it's important to have this conversation. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Well, Natasha, thank you so much for joining me for the conversation today. Um, And to our listeners, our series on racial microaggressions in American culture will begin soon. And we do hope that you will tune in. This is Culture Rich Conversations. I'm Christina Michelle, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Culture Rich Conversations. I'm Christina Michelle. Today in Black History, we are celebrating Bernard Jeffrey McCullough, also known as Bernie Mac. Born on October 5th, 1957 in Chicago, Illinois, Bernie Mac was one of the original kings of comedy, who was an accomplished comedian and actor. Whether it was in movies such as Ocean's Eleven or his own TV show, The Bernie Mac Show, Bernie Mac used his talent to shine a light on Black culture. 
With a grandfather as the deacon of a Baptist church, Bernie Mac performed his first stand-up routine at the age of eight, where he did an impersonation of his grandparents at the dinner table for the church-filled congregation. In 1992, he started his acting career by starring in the movie Mo Money alongside Damon Wayans. Then in 1995, he appeared in the movie Friday while making numerous appearances in the HBO 90s comedy series Deaf Comedy Jam. However, it was Spike Lee's The Kings of Comedy that propelled him forward and ultimately gave him the opportunity to bring his show, The Bernie Mac Show, to air. The success of Bernie Mac's career in acting continued to grow with movies such as Charlie's Angels, Full Throttle, Bad Santa, Ocean's 12, and Ocean's 13, to name a few. At a time when he appeared to be at the height of his success, he lost his life in 2008 to pneumonia. More than 6,000 people attended his memorial service in Chicago. Today, we celebrate Bernie Mac, a man who lived his life out loud and used his comedy to pull back the curtains on the Black-lived experience of everyday life of Black culture in America. We appreciate you for listening today, and we look forward to hearing any feedback you have. Our email address is junobaa at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook by searching BAA Juno. And our mailing address is P.O. Box 33734, Juno, Alaska 99803. Today's show was produced by Natasha Boozer. And until next week, may your life be blessed and flow with ease. I'm Christina Michelle, and this has been Culture Rich Conversations. Culture Rich Conversations is underwritten by Mark Stofa and Sarah Hannon. Celebrating Juno's diversity of culture, language, and heritage. You're listening to Culture Rich. Culture Rich.